The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 36 to 38. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. When I finish reading, I will say this the word of Lord, please respond with thanks be to God. As he was going along, they were spreading the clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they have seen. Thank you, Francis. All right. Happy Sunday, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. What a privilege to be with you guys this morning. You guys doing okay this morning? You guys awake? Okay, those two sections are awake because they have to work really hard. And the back section is representing this morning. So good job. The rest of you guys, you got like 30 minutes to get this before I get off the stage this morning. Well, today kicks off Holy Week. We are excited to have you here. This is the week before Jesus uh, dies, is willingly goes to his death, and then is resurrected on Resurrection Sunday, which will be next week. We'll celebrate that. But, uh, but this is an exciting week for us. This is a, a good time for us just to sort of enter into this week thinking about all the things that God has done for us and who he is. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jared. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and we really are excited to have you with us this morning. Before we go any farther, I'd like to start us off with a little bit of pastoral prayer time this morning. And so would you guys just bow your heads and join with me? I'd like to pray for the churches around us in Burbank this morning. Father God, by name, we lift up your churches here in Burbank. Father, we lift up Media City and City Light, South Hills, All Souls, Emmanuel, Calvary Bible, and Lord, a myriad of others that we don't quite know yet. Lord, we ask that your churches in Burbank would be healthy and beautiful representations of you to this community. I pray that as churches we would never place an unholy value on our brand, on our image, on our methods, but that we would always be about your name, your will, and your glory. I pray that we as churches would exemplify unity and charity amongst ourselves so that the community would see what it looks like to see your people loving each other well. I pray we would lay down our own agendas, we would lay down our own um, ideas about what needs to happen, and that we would be about your agenda and your will for this city. That we would love this city desperately and seek the welfare of this city like you command us to. I pray that we would serve this city, our churches, our people, to the point that our inconvenient generosity would be uh, legendary and point people to you, not to us. May you be so much more important than us, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like us to go back to our scripture reading for the day. Thank you, Francis, for uh, reading that portion. But I want us to go back to a little bit longer version. I want to give us a little bit better context. And so if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 19. Now, the Bible is divided into Old Testament and New Testament, or some Bibles will say Old Covenant and New Covenant. Jesus has always existed. The Old Covenant is before Jesus became human, before he took on a humanity in addition to his God nature. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He is... uh, 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 both. He has two natures. And so, um, 
as he took on this human nature in addition to his God nature, we get this New Testament, the New Covenant, that helps us to understand that. Those New Testament are kicked off by the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we'll be in the book of Luke towards the end, chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. It says this. When he said these things, meaning Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Bring it. If anyone asks, Why are you stealing this donkey? Wait, no. If anyone asks, Why are you untying it? Say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said, and apparently the owners had no problem with it. So they bring it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they help Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. So Jesus arrives at Bethpage, which is a city, a village, a little town on the backside of the Mount of Olives. And this is a part of the ascent of the mountain that tops off. And you get to the top of the Mount of Olives and you see Jerusalem for the first time. You see the city. This is still that way today. You enter, excuse me, (coughs) you enter down this path that takes you down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and then up into entrance at the Golden Gate. In fact, I'd like to show you a little bit about that. So this is a picture from the Mount of Olives looking onto the Temple Mount. And the, the wall that you see right there, that's actually the mount that the temple was built on. That's the Temple Mount. You see there the Dome of the Rock, um, and then there are some sites that go around it. The, uh, if you've heard of the, uh, the Western Wall that the Jews still pray at, it's on the back side of this, on the left side of your screen. That would be the Western Wall. Uh, some people call it the Wailing Wall, but that's not actually appropriate. So the, the, the Western Wall is on the back side of that. You'll notice this front wall here, uh, there is a graveyard there. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. And then you can actually kind of see the Golden Gate. Go to the next picture, please. Okay. You can now see there's the, the, uh, the wall that kind of goes around, and then that is built into the, uh, the foundation there of the temple. You see the graveyard I was talking about. Um, this is the Kidron Valley, though. So this is looking down from the Mount of Olives. That's not that big. Whenever I read this in the scriptures, I was always like, oh, the Kidron Valley. Like when it says Jesus is hanging out of the Mount of Olives, I'm thinking this is like miles and miles away from the city of Jerusalem. But it's right there. When Jesus is hiding out in the Mount of Olives, he's like, you know, you could punt a football to the, to the old city. It's, it's right, it's, it's literally, that's, that's the Kidron Valley. It's just it. Go to the next one. Okay, that is the Golden Gate. You'll notice it's been sealed. This was sealed much, much later. Uh, one of the sultans sealed it up, and they did this for two reasons. They knew that the prediction was that the Messiah was going to enter the Golden Gate, and so they did two things. They, they uh, filled the gate in, and then they put a graveyard in the front because no rabbi would ever walk over a graveyard or walk over the dead. We have one slight problem with that theory, and that is Jesus already entered the Golden Gate. We see that today. So this is a part of the path 
of entering the temple for this feast. And so this is the big deal. It's all these pilgrims who be traveling to Jerusalem together. And Jesus is a part of this traveling group that's going to worship in the temple for this festival of Passover. And they're coming down from that Mount of Olives. They're walking through the Kidron Valley. And they're entering into this golden gate. Jesus riding on a donkey. Now, he's being welcomed as king. There's, there's, there's no mistake here. As they're laying palm branches down, as they're laying their cloaks, they're shouting, they're screaming from Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The atmosphere is electric. I mean, the excitement, the joy, the hope, it's palpable. You can feel it. You can taste it. You can touch it. You can smell it. It's, it's like this is going to happen by force, whether you like it or not. This is a moment. At that moment, one of the Pharisees is like, hey, you better calm your people down. The Romans are going to come in here and execute everybody. Like, calm your people. And Jesus makes a statement. He says, listen, if these people, if humanity isn't going to do it, even creation would cry out, right? There's only one problem. Jesus wasn't there to do what they wanted him to do. If you've ever been to a square in Europe or Asia, you've probably seen a giant statue of a man riding a great war horse. They're all over Russia, over Europe. And the picture is one of a conquering hero who has entered this place with power and authority. And it usually symbolizes some great victory or, or salvation of the city. But Jesus enters not as a conquering hero with power and authority, but as a humble servant riding on a donkey as the king of peace. You might go, well, why does this matter? You see, at this moment, the nation of Israel is being occupied by the Romans. They have come in, conquered, and essentially enslaved the people of Israel. Everything has been changed, their culture, their habits, and the Jews are fighting to maintain what they possibly can but they make no doubt, they are occupied by another nation. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine in the vein of like Man in the High Castle or Red Dawn, for those of you who are a little older, that the United States has been invaded by a foreign country. Imagine what that would mean for your day-to-day way of life. Most of the ways of life that you live, if you think about it, would actually change. What would that do to the industry here? Unless you're in propaganda films from then on out. What would that do to just the simple things that we take for granted right now? The small things. Going where we want, crossing state lines without papers. You know, the Jews had to give up their money. Their money was only good inside their temple. Everything else was different currency even. Think about what that would mean in your day-to-day life right now. And the Jews knew there was this promise by God that someday they were going to be saved. And so this was never more of an important time than right in this moment. And this is the context that we enter this story in. They're desperately seeking salvation. They're desperately seeking when is this occupation going to end? When is this forever kingdom going to be set up? And we know it's going to be set up by the Messiah. And so here we have many different people who have claimed to be Messiah before, but no one has backed it up the way that this guy Jesus is. And he's doing it by miracles like the nation has never before seen. I mean, he's healing the sick. He's taking care of their needs. And just a few days before he did the impossible, he literally raises a guy from the dead. In fact, there's no reason to believe that raised Lazarus isn't with Jesus right now as he's walking into Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? 
you've heard the stories. Jesus just raised from the, somebody from the dead, and you're like, hey, can you, you don't buy this, right? He's like, well, I'm, I'm Lazarus, so <laughs> kind of, you know. Can, can you imagine what that would be like? At this moment, the Jews would be like, what can this guy not do? Of course he can overthrow the Romans. He must be the Messiah. There's nothing else. But see, for Jesus, there's something much bigger than ruling a simple city in the middle of long contested borders. Jesus doesn't want to write their relationship with the Romans. He wants to write all of creation's relationship with the creator. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't want to write their relationship with the Romans. He wants to write all of creation's relationship with the creator. When the crowds discover that Jesus isn't going to establish a physical kingdom that will free them from the immediate bondage of the Romans, they turn on him. It's the same people that actually are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The same person they were calling king just a few days earlier. If you're taking notes today, this is our first observation for the day. This is really important. How we see Jesus changes the way we interact with him. How we see Jesus changes the way that we interact with him. You see, while the crowd gets the symbolism of the donkey, they, they got that, right? Obviously, they're laying down palm branches and they're laying down their coats. They, they missed a bigger picture here. And the reason they're descending on the temple is because they're coming to celebrate Passover. Now, God had required the nation of Israel to celebrate a bunch of different festivals to to remind them of what he has done in the past. And one of the most important is the remembrance of their exodus from slavery to Egypt and their freedom into the promised land. And so we read in the book of Exodus at the beginning of our Bible that the nation of Israel had become enslaved to the Egyptian people. God sends Moses to their leader, Pharaoh, and says, hey, you need to let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God institutes uh, uh, worse and worse plagues in order to change Pharaoh's mind. Pharaoh doesn't. And so uh, finally, as God prepares to unleash the worst plague of them all, the death of all firstborn animals and people in the nation. God tells the nation of Israel, prepare to leave. I'm going to do something great, and I want you to follow these very specific requirements. Author D. Magnum writes this. The tenth and final plague was the death of all the firstborn, human and animal, in Egypt. God punished Egypt but spared the firstborn of Israel as long as the Israelites properly followed Moses' instructions. On the night of the plague, the Israelites were instructed to stay in their homes after slaughtering a lamb and placing its blood on the lintel and doorposts of their homes. The blood was to be a sign that distinguished the Israelites and separated them from the intended victims of the plague. Do you see it? Do you see the greater symbolism? God is rescuing his people from slavery and bondage. Death literally passes over those who are covered in the blood of the lamb. The exodus from slavery to freedom is this picture, this symbol of what Jesus was there to do for all of us. But here's the deal. If, like the Jews of Jesus' day, we only see Jesus uh, as something we're doing or something we're getting to know or a person that just meets our needs, as something we're getting something from, then we don't get to actually see the relationship with him the way it's supposed to be. See, some of us actually see Jesus as like our cosmic ATM. And we say, if you just provide for me, then I'll believe in you. If you keep providing for me, then I'll continue to believe in you. You know, if you just give me a comfortable life, 
if you make sure that life isn't too hard, or if you give me peace and safety, hassle-free life. I, I want the perfect kids or the perfect career or the perfect spouse. If you just do that, then I'll know that you're worth trusting. We may not say these things consciously, but so often we live in these ways. Some of us actually see more of Jesus as like an insurance against hell. Like, you know, if, if, if I just sort of do enough religious things, I'm not too bad of a person, and me and Jesus are kind of like buddies, right? Then, like, he has to kind of stand up for me at the end. But doesn't he kind of owe me that for all the things I've done? And again, we, we, we don't think like this straight out, right? But we live this way more often than we probably care to admit. If Jesus is just an end goal to what I want, then I don't truly understand who he is or what he's done. And in that moment, I'm actually demanding that God serves me. If you're taking notes today, this is the second observation for the day. Jesus didn't come to offer us a better life. He came to offer us the only life there is. Jesus isn't something we add to our lives. It's not something that we add into what we're doing. It literally completely replaces everything. It must. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Matrix and In the movie, Lawrence Fishburne's character, Morpheus, is interacting with Keanu Reeves' character, Neo. Morpheus, it is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Neo, what truth? Morpheus, that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or see or touch, a prison for your mind. See, we don't have to imagine what it's like to be in an occupied country because we're in a real war with good and evil right now. You see, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they broke the relationship between God and humanity, the relationship between humans and the relationship between humanity and the earth. All you have to do is look around and you can see how jacked up all those relationships actually are. Everyone born after that then is born into sin and is a citizen of sin's kingdom. But on top of that, each one of us has rebelled in our own ways. Anything we think or do or don't do that isn't God's way of thinking or doing is actually sin and treasonous rebellion against God. And so we're now citizens of an evil kingdom in rebellion against God. And because God is truly just, he can't tolerate evil. If he did, it would be saying that evil is good and God cannot do that. That would make him not good. The Bible is clear that he's going to destroy all evil and deal with all rebellion and sin. And you ask, well then... Why hasn't God just done that? Why is there so much evil in the world? We see it all the time. But because God is not just just, but also merciful, he created a way for humanity to become citizens of that kingdom, of his kingdom, instead of slaves to the evil one. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We need a God who is both just and merciful, And in response, God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. And those who apprentice Jesus aren't just citizens of this new kingdom. We are family. Because Jesus took the punishment for our sin on himself. We're no longer able to be tried for those same sins. But more than that, Jesus didn't just take our punishment and sin. He actually shared his righteousness with us, which is incredible. When the Father sees us, he actually sees the true righteousness of Jesus, not just us. And scripture says we now share everything with Jesus and we're sons and daughters of the living God. Now, what would it look like if our interaction with Jesus was based on what he's done and who that makes us? We call that our identity in Christ. 
What if our interaction was based on who he is and our identity instead of what Jesus could give us? What would that look like in our everyday lives? See, when we apprentice Jesus, when that's only what we do in order to get something from him, then every time we face a difficulty, it's almost like God has bait and switched us. God, you promised that life was going to be easy. He didn't promise that. But when we're just trying to get stuff from God and he doesn't deliver the way that we want in our own timing, then it's like God has failed us over and over again. What does that lead us to do? We question the character and nature of God. The truth is that God actually isn't the problem in our scenario. We are. See, more often than not, we don't actually know what our immediate needs are. It's more obvious to us what our current needs and wants are. And this is why less than a week after welcoming Jesus as king, the same crowd has turned on them because they didn't get what their immediate need was. And they're hurling curses and mocking at him as he's hanging on the cross by the side of the road. But Jesus came to answer a deeper, a bigger question for them, a question that they didn't even realize they were asking. Pastor and author N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, everyone wants Jesus to ride into the city and be the sort of king they want him to be. Jesus intends to answer their prayers as he intends to answer ours. He doesn't wait for our motives to be pure. He has come to seek and rescue the lost. However, at the same time, he must answer in his own way precisely because Jesus says yes to the people's desires at the deepest level, he will have to say no or wait to the desires they are conscious of and which they express. You see, the Jews' deepest desire was for freedom. And Jesus came to bring freedom from spiritual slavery first before dealing with the physical slavery to the Romans. How do I know this? Well, because we see this actually play out in Jesus' ministry over and over. In fact, let's go to the book of Matthew, the beginning of those Gospels, chapter 9. Verse 1, it says this, So he, meaning Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. At this time, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Now put yourself in this scene for a moment. Imagine that you're the paralytic, okay? Your friends have struggled to get you to this guy. You've heard his healing people. It's been a battle. You finally get in front of him. You're ready to be healed. And what is the first thing he says to you? Your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but there's two thoughts that cross my mind if I'm that guy. The first is, uh, look, dude, in case you didn't notice, I've got a bigger issue going on right here. There's plenty of time for that. I can definitely get to that. In fact, if you are who you say you are, heal me, and then I can believe that you're that guy. The second thought that goes through my mind is, really? Who are you to talk to me about my sins? Can't you just fix me first? See, we want Jesus to do things our way and our timing. We want him to do it our way because we believe we know what's best and most important in our lives. Ultimately, I think that's our real complaint against Jesus is that he doesn't do things our way. 
Ultimately, the biggest frustration we have with Jesus is that he doesn't do things our way. We say, I'll believe in you if you show me you'll meet my needs in my way and my timing. I'll follow you if I know the outcome ahead of time. I want you to serve me. Some of you might be saying, well, I've been apprenticing Jesus for a long time. I don't think like that. I guarantee you the truth is that we all have areas of unbelief. And that's truly what it is. It's an area of unbelief. I don't believe God is going to take care of me as well as I might take care of myself. And so I need to make sure that I'm doing what I need to to cover myself in this area. And we take it in a place where we go, I've got my own little thing here, God. And if you'll just meet this need, then we're good. But what about those areas of our lives that we don't have easy answers for? I mean, it was easy to see what Jesus was doing in this guy because right after God gives him his spiritual healing, then he gives him his, feel, his physical healing, and so we see it tied together. But so often in life, God will do something spiritually, and then we don't get to see it physically. Will we still trust and believe Jesus is the true and better king when we don't have those answers? You know, for this scenario, I have to turn to my own family. My kids are a great, great way that God helps me to understand him. I remember my daughter Kylie was about five years old, and she said, Daddy, is, is Jesus in my heart? I said, yes. She said, does that mean I ate him? I said, only if you're Catholic, sweetheart. (laughs) Some of you will get that joke later. (laughs) But some of you also know that my 18-year-old son has Down syndrome and autism and a seizure disorder. He's still in diapers, doesn't speak. Because of his seizures, he oftentimes falls over, so you'll often see him in a wheelchair. There was a great moment where many of you sitting outside did not know that he can walk in, in small spaces. And so I guess during one of the services I was talking, and he got up and walked, and people were like, it's a miracle. <laughs> we have him in a wheelchair because he, he oftentimes gets overwhelmed in crowds with the autism, and, and he sits down, and you can't get him up, but also because of the seizures, he just falls over. Um, and, and, and so here's the deal. While he understands more than he can communicate, um, it's challenging for us to understand anything with him that's more than just a surface level. I don't ever get to have more than a one-sided conversation about Jesus with him. That's hurtful to me, to be honest with you. But there's more than that. I, I remember uh, one particular time, he didn't make it to the bathroom in time, and he had, he had pooped in his diaper, and, and not to be crass, but remember, we're not talking about a baby here. We're talking about a teenage boy. And I was trying to get him cleaned up, but because his autistic side didn't want to be touched in that moment, he began to fight me, and this battle ensued where now he's getting poop all over himself and all over the, the walls and the toilet and me, and I'm just trying to get him, and this, this, this frustration comes over me, and I'm trying to help him understand what I'm doing for you right now is what you need. It's what's best, and he's not understanding just don't touch me, and there's just... And now I'm feeling guilty that I'm yelling at my own son who really doesn't understand what I'm trying to do and I'm, I'm getting mad at myself and I'm... There's so many nights when I feel like this isn't fair. When I feel like one of my deepest needs is to be able to communicate to my son so we don't end up in situations like that. And while I can point to some amazing things God has taught my family and me through this circumstance, there isn't a moment that goes by that I I wouldn't simply love for God to fix that right now. There's not a moment that goes by I'm just like, God, I wish you would just fix this. It's not fair. I mean, it's not. But if I were in charge, of course I'd fix it, but I wouldn't be the perfect balance of love 
and justice and mercy. If I were in charge, I wouldn't understand the bigger picture of how things connect and what's best for my family and for the kingdom of God. See, God promises that what he does in our lives is always best for us and for his kingdom, whether I recognize or understand it or not. And so as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, we're faced with the same exact dilemma the first century Jews were. Jesus is riding in, being worshipped as king. They're laying down their cloaks and they're saying, we worship you, we worship you. But they're in a place where they're worshiping because of what Jesus can give them. Family, there are many areas of our lives where we are still worshiping Jesus for what he can do for us and not simply for who he is. Do we want Jesus for who he is as king and lord over us? Or do we only want Jesus for what we think he can give us? Jesus was brutally beaten so that we can be healed. He was willingly murdered so that we can have true life. He was rejected by the Father so we could be accepted and adopted into the family of God. He is either God as he is or he is not God at all to us. We cannot have it our way and have him as king in our lives. We either accept all of him in his ways or we're saying that we are king instead. Here's what I'd like you to do. Take out your phone, take out your note sheet. And I'd like you to write down one area of your life that you think should be different. One area of your life that you think maybe isn't fair. One area of your life that you think, I just don't understand why God would allow it to be this way. You're not going to share this with anybody. Don't worry, we're not collecting it, right? I want you just to write it down for yourself. You have a choice at this moment. You can look at that area of your life and you can say, see, this is why I can never trust you, God. Or you can look at this and say, God, I don't understand why it is the way it is. But I will trust that you know what's best for me more than I know what's best for me. If you choose the first one, that's totally fine. God is a big enough God to handle it. He's okay if you write the first one down. At least in that moment, you'll have been honest with God. If you choose the second one, I want to tell you, you may not get an answer in this life. You may not get a full answer as to why God has done or allowed this to happen in your life. But it's the first step to submitting to his will and ways in all areas of your life. And so here's the prayer that you can pray if the second choice is yours. If you want to learn how to submit to Jesus as king. It goes like this. God, help me to want what you want in this specific area of my life. Help me to trust that you are answering my deepest needs, even if I'm not aware of those, of what they are in this moment. Help me to surrender to you. Amen. It's a great place to start. If you're struggling with an area of your life and you're just going, I just don't understand. Again, we may never get an answer. I can't promise that you will. But you know what? I found that missional community groups and DNA groups are a great place to wrestle with other people who are also going through those things with you. It's a great opportunity for us to talk through that. Good? Is this helpful this morning? Awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God who has loved us despite the reasons we come to you, that you don't wait for us to have this all together, you don't wait for us to be a people who get our act together, that we don't have to make ourselves right or be good enough, that you literally have done what you've done because of your great love, of your glory, not because of our effort or our good deeds. I thank you that we don't have to be good enough for you because you're good enough for us. And so, Lord, we just come before you and ask that you would help us to want what you want for our own lives. 
that you would help us to surrender to you even when we don't understand, that we would not come to you and, and only have relationship with you to get what we need from you, that we would love you for who you are. And in the process, you've promised to bless us, to meet our needs.